Come on down to Narangong, where narrow-minded folk belong. Bring the kids, it's a bloody good place to be. There's a bakery and a primary school, a decent pub and a public pool. There's a roundabout and a bloody good petting zoo to boot. So come on down, grab a beer. You can stay if you're from here. And if you're not, you best be moving along from Narangong. You can't. Earl, are you alright, mate? You look a bit troubled. Is it just the subject matter getting you down? Yeah, completely understand. It's it's sad stuff. Alright. G'day, cunts. Welcome back. We're going to take a bit of a turn today, into the past and also into more serious fare. Narangong's obviously a beautiful place to live, but like all of Australia, it does us well to take a moment and remember the people who came before us and sacrificed so much. There's a monument to them in the centre of town, and today, we're going to learn why it's there. This is ANZACYC. In the centre of Narangong, there is a bloody big cannon. Young kids like to play on it, and teenagers have been known to straddle the thing for a humorously suggestive photograph. The well-trimmed grass, blooming flowers, and the gentle shade from a solitary conifer that stands alongside also have made it a popular picnic spot for a family reunion or a first date, or both. Nestled among this tranquility is a small plaque commemorating the bravery and sacrifice of the greatest bloody generation Nara ever saw. In 1915, four young men from Narangong marched off to war, and only three marched back. The name of their fallen comrade is now emblazoned across that plaque, and the good people of Nara pause when their gaze falls upon it. Kenneth M. Alfred all who read it remember the sacrifice of the diggers who shipped off to defend Australia against hordes of hungry Austrians. And every April 25th, Don Harry recounts the tale of Alfred's tragic and heroic sacrifice to the sombre and grateful crowd. Well, we get down to Adelaide to sign up. He begins every year. They put us all in a bloody big boat bound for WA, and off we go. Ken sneaks a couple of bottles of rum on board and we went into it pretty hard as soon as we left the docks. By the time we're passing the boot, Ken's three sheets to the wind and he wants to go up on deck so he can point out the sights. So he's leaning against the railing, pointing out into the bight. That just reminds me of a yarn, he said, before the bastard loses his grip and dips over the edge. Never was one for swimming, that Ken. Lest we, we forget. Lest we forget. The good people of Nara say back in solemn unison, Every year Nara remembers, but told far less often, either because of the humility of these brave men, or because the good people of Narangong are far too respectful to pry into painful memories, are the stories of those that were left to grow old. Don swayed gently as he stared at the empty spot where Ken had just been standing. By his side were young Bruce McCaffrey, barely 17, but known around town as a quiet and respectful lad, and George Shanky, a young man too, but lean and wiry, and tanned from long days in the fields. Bloody hell, Don said, scarce able to believe his eyes. That's a fucking tragedy. Too right, said George, gazing at the churning waters below them with a sad look in his eye. 
half a bloody bottle of rum that cunt was holding. War's not even begun and we're two soldiers down. The sea breeze whistled mournfully past them. As they stood in quiet contemplation, two men approached, themselves a little unsteady, and one holding an open, almost full bottle of rum. What's the tragedy, boys? Asked the taller of the two, peering curiously over the railing. Lost a bottle of rum, we did. Looking longingly at the precious drops that these new arrivals spilled with each roll of the ship. And a good man with it. Struth. Said the shorter of the two. That's a crying shame. After a period of solemn remembrance, he spoke up again. Pity about your mate too. Yeah, have a drink with us then, and we can talk about the good times. So the men passed the bottle from hand to hand and, swaying partly with the waves but mostly to their own internal rhythms, reminisced about the friend they'd lost. That was some bloody strong rum. The waves sloshed against the hull below. How about your mate though? Yeah, right. Ken had been saving that bottle for a date he had. Began Bruce, generally respected as the best storyteller among them. He was going to take this bird to the dance and warm her up with the belt of this slipped in her punch. Said he was going to show her how to shake a leg. He always could dance, that Ken. That he could. Show her how to shake a leg, he said. Then take her out behind the hall and show her how to shake something else. Bloody romantic was Ken. Too bloody right. Never did get the chance, though. We signed up the morning of the dance and they whisked us off that same day. Ken marched off, bottle in hand, and left that poor girl waiting on the side of the road, I'd wager. Well, he broke it out as soon as we pulled anchor, barely got halfway through before that clumsy bastard went and dropped it over the edge. Crying bloody shame. They passed the bottle in silence as they pondered the vagaries of fate and the tragedy of war. The wind that blew up from the south carried with it the chill of the Antarctic and the smell of the open ocean. It whistled past the masts and cracked the flags like whips. The sudden report stirred the taller of the two strangers from a thoughtful reverie. Hang on, he began. Your mate, Ken you said his name was. That's right, came the unsteady reply. Good old bloody Kenno. And he was taking this girl to a dance. Let's see here, would have been last Friday, right? Pressed the taller stranger, his eyes narrowing slightly. Bruce, happily oblivious to the man's harder tone, gestured emphatically with the now empty bottle as he replied. Right, mate, Friday last, but he never got the bloody chance. He didn't happen to say her name now, did he? Nah, mate, she was just some gambo bird, probably tired of waiting for her cousin to lose interest in the sheep. And the three Narangong boys joined in a hearty laugh that blinded them from the increasingly hostile glare that the tall stranger cast upon them. I've never fucked a fucking sheep, you fucking narrow cunts! He yelled, breaking through the mirth, and he stepped forward, uncurling his arm to bring a grapefruit-sized fist around and around and around into Bruce's jaw, lifting him an inch off the deck, floating him softly sideways before he fell, quite fast asleep, in a crumpled heap. Don and George fell silent. Don squinted as he tried to make sense of this recent development. He looked first at George, eyes closed and mouth open, and then up at the tall fella. His lips moved silently, and he tilted his head as he considered this new turn of events. George, rather quicker on the uptake, let out a roar. Fucking gambos, Don! Get him! George levelled the tall fella with a swift kick to his groin and fell upon him, all elbows and knees, while Don tackled the shorter gambo to the ground. It was grunts and wheezes and periodic exclamations of uncouth hatred while this internecine conflict wound its way, kicking and punching across the deck of the steamer, knocking over crates, loosening teeth and drawing great attention from the other men aboard. A crowd gathered around them, cheering and clapping and swiftly drawing the attention of the sergeant-at-arms. 
he stepped over to the rolling mass of limbs and fists and swung his club. Rubbing the back of his head the next morning, George reflected on this betrayal. It was one thing to send young men off to die fighting for a country they'd never seen and another country they'd be hard-pressed to find on a map, but it was quite another to ask them to do so next to a bunch of bloody conniving gambos. He sported a goose egg on the back of his head, but Don fared much worse. The shorter gambo with whom Don had been wrestling had gained the upper hand before he was knocked cold by the sergeant's club. Don seized the opportunity to climb atop the prostrate man and deliver some much-needed retribution and was stopped in his righteous act only by a boot to the face. Bruce, meanwhile, awoke largely unable to speak, but having been knocked unconscious rather early in the proceedings, without much to say either. The bruises faded, but the sense of betrayal did not. For the rest of the trip, the narrow boys nursed loose teeth and tender egos. Basic training was marked by tomfoolery and pranksmanship. Those bastards from Gambay would steal shoelaces and the narrow boys would respond in kind by slipping a red-backed spider into their boots. Those Gambo cunts sneaked into the showers and made off with three uniforms and towels to match, leaving our boys a rather drafty dash back to the bunks. So they responded in kind by stealing a jerry can, sneaking out during dinner to douse those Gambo cunts' bunks in petrol and set them alight. The slow-burning coals and quickly-burning bedding of their mutual hatred continued to smoulder during the long journey from Western Australia to Egypt, where they were banked somewhat by the intriguing proximity of peculiar bazaars, each a warren of dark and inviting stores, or perhaps by the invitations of dusky women draped in brightly coloured silks. Whatever the cause, a de facto ceasefire arose among the men. The cold silence between them continued, no doubt, and was broken by periodic curses against the illegitimate sons of Narangong or of Gambo, or upon discovering biting insects secreted between sheets, missing buttons on shirt fronts, or pictures of sweethearts vandalised to include teeth befitting pack mules. But all five men survived these long months in the desert without sustaining a single bruise at each other's hands, and with only a few nocturnal conflagrations. What a shame that this fleeting calm poorly presaged the savagery awaiting these brave lads, across the Mediterranean. They had crossed on large ships that weighed anchor some distance from the shore in the dead of night to load into rowboats for the landing. Now they sat in the front of the landing boat as it was rowed ashore under cover of night. The blades made a soft clop, clop as they lifted in and out of the water. The oarlocks creaked and the men on board bit their lips and clutched their rifles and spoke not at all. It was not enough. Before they had reached the beach, a shout went up from the cliffs above. Shrill whistles of alarm cut into the peace of the still, dark morning, then shots tore it apart. First one, then more, then too many to count. Splashes in the water ahead of them dared them to come closer. Hot lead thudded into the prow, the gunnels, the benches where they sat. One of the rowers slumped over his oar with a groan, and the boat listed, now crippled and moving slowly, an easy target. Quick as you like, George pulled the injured man from his station and moved into his seat. His rangy arms were taut with each stroke, and the boat surged forward again. George rowed as if he wished nothing more than to be the first ashore, even as those who landed were cut down on the rocks. With a sudden crunch, the bow lifted and the boat listed to port. Those men that could were over the sides and making their way up the beach, bullets panging on the rocks around them like hail on a tin roof. George was ahead of them all. He led the charge up the beach, streaking forward and leaping rocks like a rabbit. 
while the other men sprang their way from cover to cover, crouching behind boulders or behind the landing boats. George flew over the beach and toward the cliffs, determined to take on Johnny Turk by himself. From behind the trunk, they looked ahead to see George sprinting toward the cliffs. He had raced ahead of them from the moment they sprang from the boats. He danced now over the rocks, his rifle in his arms, surging toward the enemy as if nothing could touch him. But there, ahead of the rest and far from cover, mid-stride, his head rocked suddenly back, struck by an invisible blow. His momentum carried him forward for a moment before his legs crumpled under him and he tumbled toward the ground, dropped his rifle and lay motionless. Bruce and Don leaped up from behind the trunk but were driven back by bullets splashing into the rocks between them. George was only 50 yards away, but it was an eternity. Even now the men from the boats were being cut down in the surf. On the open stretches of beach to their left and right, men dropped like ripe oranges from overloaded trees. Clusters of men huddled behind rocks. Others carried the landing boats ashore and crowded behind them for shelter. The charge had stalled on the rocky beach. George lay like seaweed pushed ashore on the high tide and left alone as waves of men crashed on the beach below. Before the men had time to curse their luck, a green blur leapt over them, landed lightly on the rocks ahead and made its way towards their fallen comrade. It was the tall Gambo, and he made his way up the beach faster than they'd ever seen a man run. The bullets dared not touch him as he ran, crouched over George and without the barest effort, flung him over his shoulder. The extra weight did not slow him as he ran on up the beach, toward the cliffs. He hauled George's still limp body into the shadow of a rock that stuck out from the base of the cliff and afforded some cover from the men above. He crouched down as bullets spat sand and shards of rock all around. Pinned down under the barest cover, he couldn't stand without being exposed to enemy fire. From behind the tree, there on the most exposed part of that rocky beach, Don and Bruce could see that this defenceless pair were drawing the fire of the Turks on the cliffs above. With a shout of mad courage, the men vaulted the downed tree and made their own way toward the cliffs. They were joined in the charge by the shorter Gambo, who had been huddled down the beach behind an upturned boat and all three ran headlong toward the enemy above. By the time they reached the cliff, the taller man was taking full advantage of the confusion to lean from behind the rock and take shots at the cliff-top defenders. A keen eye and a steady hand he had. First one, then another Turk dropped from his post. Don, Bruce and the shorter man rocketed into cover at the same time. Don rushed to George and crouched beside his unmoving friend. George's eyes were closed and blood ran from the side of his head, just above his right ear but Bruce saw his chest heave slowly with each breath. Bruce looked up at the taller man, who gave a tight smile and a quick nod. Reckon it just clipped him on the bonds? Bruce nodded, took a breath of his own, and looked around. Other men had taken shelter behind the bleached trunk back on the beach. Others were wading ashore amid the frequent zip and splash of the Turkish bullets and the floating, clutching, outstretched arms of their fallen comrades. Yet more men were even now rowing ashore, as the Turks above held tight to the higher ground. George clearly wasn't going anywhere fast, and they could hardly spend the morning huddled beneath the overhanging rock. No time for a picnic, Bruce bellowed. Let's get a bloody move on. With nary a backward look, Bruce charged out from behind the rock and up the cliff, the other men close on his heels. Up they scrambled, rocks shifting underfoot, grabbing handfuls of the low scrubby bushes that dotted the cliffs to hoist themselves higher. Up they scrambled, rocks shifting underfoot, grabbing handfuls of the low, scrubby bushes that dotted the cliffs to hoist themselves higher. Up they climbed, up and up and closer to the defenders atop the cliffs, pausing periodically to shelter behind a copse of scraggly trees or a bare rise in the hard ground, and return fire before breaking cover to charge again towards the defending enemy. 
now jumping rocks, now scrambling on hands and knees up loose scree, now throwing themselves down in a shallow hollow to shelter from a barrage of return fire. Their relentless, fearless charge had scattered the Turks ahead. As one man fell, then another, the rest ducked and hid and ran from what seemed like half the bloody Anzac Brigade. They were a red-hot knife sizzling through butter. When they had almost breasted the hill, the Turkish captain finally realised the threat was but four madmen. He called to his troops for courage or, at the very least, its wartime analogue, discipline. The four diggers had sheltered in a shallow depression. They could hear shouts of command not too far distant, and the blast of Turkish rifles lessened, then ceased. Bruce lifted himself cautiously to look ahead, and was forced back by a volley of shots that smashed into the hard ground and whistled by his head. Struth, he said, flattening himself back into the dirt. The Turks had gathered their wits sufficient to hold the line in front, and were beginning to fan out to the sides of the small hollow. Before long, a shot rang out from the right of them and whizzed low overhead. Then another from the left thudded into the dirt. They had run courageously towards the enemy, but they had also run away from their brothers on the beach below them. Alone now, on top of the cliffs, the men huddled in the most meagre of foxholes as the Turkish defenders regained their composure and began to flank them. Well, boys, said Bruce, with his usual perspicacity, we're rooted. Pinned down, deep in enemy territory and surrounded on three sides, Bruce had made a particularly salient point. It was only a matter of time before the Turks were able to pick them off with well-aimed shots. But as the clifftop defenders had fallen, then retreated, and now concentrated their fire on these four men who had rushed heedlessly into danger, those below had crossed the beach in greater safety and in greater numbers. Hundreds of men had made their way first to the bottom of the cliffs and, looking at the mad scramble above, they too charged up. Up and up and over the loose scree and the protruding rocks, leaping down trees and scrambling up the steep hills. Finally now to a stretch of exposed ground, lined on three sides by Turkish defenders who were utterly unprepared to meet them. From where they lay in the hollow, the four lads heard only a sudden and intense burst of fire. Shots rang out from behind them, shouts and screams from ahead, and before long a wave of diggers rushed from behind and hoisted them to their feet. Twenty or thirty men now held the top of the hill, and hundreds more were streaming unimpeded toward them. The diggers fought on, pressing to the next rocky rise, encountering resistance at the top of every hill. It took all morning and the better part of the afternoon, moving forward now at a charge, now at a crawl, now being beaten back under fire, and now pressing forward with bayonets at the ready, before the diggers had breached the front line of the Turkish trenches. There they fought, hand to hand, clearing the Turks from the trench, pushing them back to their secondary lines. The Turks were digging in deeper even as they spoke. There'd be more fighting in the morning, no doubt, and up and down the line they could hear shouts and periodic shots as the diggers encountered pockets of resistance or strayed too close to the Turkish reserve trenches to which the front line had retreated. But a more pressing task on the beach awaited the four men who'd started the whole charge. As soon as they'd secured the trench, Don, Bruce and the two gambos hurried down to the beach and found George still prostrate under the rock. They'd nicked a donkey off some bloke on the beach and used it to carry George back up to the trench where they found him a quiet dugout and a stretcher to lay him down. Bruce shook his head, and the other men looked at him. Bloody hell, he finally said. Bloody hell, that had to be the finest piece of running I've seen. Legs like bloody steel springs, you have. They'd been sitting there in silence for the past hour, until Bruce's unexpected interjection. Weren't nothing, said the taller man. Thought I heard one of you lot behind me, and I reckoned I'd better run just as fast as I could. Don and Bruce shot him a hard and sceptical look 
but bit their tongues when they noticed his sly grin. Don started to chortle, then Bruce gave a smile and joined in too. Before long, all four men, who had cheated death and brought their vengeance to the Turks, had their arms around each other and were heaving great peals of laughter to shake the dirt walls. This was the scene to which George awoke, stirred not by enemy gunfire, but by the sounds of joyous brotherhood. A thick white bandage wrapped around his head and covered his right ear. Blood stained the side of his uniform and his hat, which they'd left sitting on his chest, had a neat hole right where the crown met the brim. He raised his head and looked confusedly at the sight of these four sworn foes, two from Narra and two from that rancid Gambo backwater, clutching each other in mirth and camaraderie. The men fell silent when they noticed him moving, but his puzzled face was enough to bring them to renewed laughter and they collapsed once more under the weight of their joy. Here, said George. I saw this then. George's sceptical squint gave way to a confused and distant look as Bruce and Don recounted the tale of his injury and subsequent rescue at the hands of the tall man. All the while, the gambo stood silently. George sat on the edge of the bed, hunched over with his eyes closed as he processed this new information. He looked up at the tall gambo for interminable seconds before pushing himself up from the stretcher with a grunt. The two men stood face to face, silently, before George stuck out his calloused hand. Can't bloody well thank a man without knowing his name, can I? The tall man took his hand. John Greenley. George Shanky. George replied. And from the way these boys tell it, it was quite a bit of work you did back on that beach. I reckon I'm in your debt. No worries, mate. Just promise you won't crack me one like you did on the ship. Don retrieved from his kit a bottle he'd kept over from Cairo, and they passed it slowly between them as they reflected on the foolishness of war. It seemed so senseless to troop off to fight other young men far from their families for a cause they barely understood. Surely it was more foolish still for these young lads from South East and South Australia to do it while locked in a struggle amongst themselves. Look at us now, said Harold, for that was the shorter man's name. After all that fighting and anger, we're sharing a drink as mates. Too bloody right. Look around. Just yesterday, Johnny Turk and his mates were sitting in these same trenches and talking about their girls back home. There's a few of them in those trenches nursing a wound and a bottle of something strong. Wouldn't be such a bad thing to share a drink with them. I reckon you're right, George. I don't reckon we are so different from these boys. Yet here we are, fighting against them. It's a crying bloody shame. Muffled gunfire was the backdrop to their silence. Far from home for no obvious reason, scraped, scuffed, shot, filthy, the men had no rebuttal to the sounds of war. Then Harold began to whistle. The high, hollow notes seemed to shiver in the dark before Don recognised the tune and joined in. Before long, the other men added their voices, and together they filled that little bunker, tucked away in a trench on a lonely beach in a strange land, with the familiar strains of the songs of their homeland. Let me sing you the song of times long past, of golden fields and summer rains. Let me sing you the song of the rolling hills and blue skies shining down on. In the town where I was born, the folk were always friendly. Until one sunny summer morn, we got word of five Bengulies. Round up the boys and head for the hills, head for the hills, up for the hills. Round up the lads and head for the hills, there's word of five Bengulies. Bengulies come from other ways, ah, oh, they come now, here they come. Bengulies come to take our land, but blowed if we'll all let them. Round up the boys and head for the hills, head for the hills, up for the hills. Round up the lads and head for the hills, we've caught sight of five Bengulies. 
Drive him out across the plains, across the rocks, across the sand. Drove him out far from the town and chased their trail till it ended. Round at the boys and head for the hills, head for the hills, up for the hills. Round at the lads and head for the hills, we've caught our five Bingoolies. They were brothers now, kindred with all mankind. The tune of their common history ringing in their ears. The men leaned against the walls and each other and fell softly asleep. Well, there you are. That's uh, part one of ANZACYC. I hope you'll join us next time for part two. Until then, take it easy. <laughs>